Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is a board-certified executive coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Welcome to the show, everyone. The Leadership Window. I am Dr. Patrick Jinks. Glad you're along. Um, Really cool show today. My good friend Mentor Dial is back with us. If you go back a number of episodes, I don't remember which one it is. Probably need to link it in the page here because it was really good. Uh, And I've been on Mentor Show as well. Now that I think about it, I'd forgotten about that. And uh, done a little bit of work on uh, on his blog, and we've just made a good connection. Mentor is uh, an internationally known and award-winning author, speaker, leadership guru, empathy uh, expert. Uh, I, we, I'm not going to read his bio. It's too long, and we wouldn't have time for the show. But uh, he is a, a, a multi-best-selling author as well, and one of the things that we're going to talk about today um, is his latest book, the second edition of Artificial Empathy. I love the title. I love the concept. I'm not all the way through the book, but I've read a good bit of it. It just came out, so a mentor was kind enough to send me a, a preview of it, and then uh, this week I picked up my own copy of it, so I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into it. But Mentor, thanks for joining us on the show again, all the way from the UK. What is it, 11 or 12 o'clock there? What? It's it 7 o'clock past, in the morning here. Noon, so good afternoon from London. Good afternoon from London, and here we are uh, in Columbia, South Carolina at 7 in the morning, which is perfect. And uh, thanks again for joining us, man. What's What's new in your world? Well, um, definitely this book and uh, this, Patrick, if you imagine this, I actually published three books this month within a window of three weeks. So I, I, I published this book in English just last week, and I did a French version of it, which I wrote myself. And I also, for my sins, translated the book I did on leadership uh, into French, totally different cover, totally different title, same content. Uh, but that is what I'm now doing. I'm trying to flog some French books and an English book. All right. All right. You win. No, it's not a competition. <laughs> it's crazy. I don't recommend it for anybody. Oh, don't man, do it. I, it's bad. Oh, man. It would be amazing, though. That's fantastic. Um, when I when we um, got on the call here just before we actually hit the record button and started this officially, I asked you how you were doing, and I forget your term, bubbly and creative and just amazing. You were in the zone. What's going on there? That's it. Besides the book publishing, what's got you in such a zone? Well, I think, well, first of all, I feel like there's so much happening outside that it it, it would take very little for us to be stimulated by what's happening. If you're in an observant mode, there's so much happening in terms of, well, geopolitically, economically, societally, politically. It's um, it's 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 a effervescent period. Not to mention tech, and um, and so the reason why I feel like I'm in the flow is I've been more and more putting my whole feet, Wellington boots and all, into what my mission and purpose is in life. It's not like I I do 24, 7, 100%, but I'm so much more linked into it that it it feels so much more obvious why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's what's driving me and making me a little bit too hyper. Because you imagine this, Patrick, I've got another book ready for the end of the year. 
And I've already started writing my next book for 2024. So enough already. I'm working on a couple of them too, and they're they're slower than I and than I wanted them to be, but that's because I've got another a couple of other sort of big projects going on as well. But you know, I'm I want to come back to something. You mentioned all of the stuff that's going on outside. You're excited about it, you're energized by it. I find myself mostly energized. I'm a pretty upbeat person. I'm very positive. I want to get up in the morning and say, look, what's my role? How can I add value? And I get energy from that, regardless of what's going on. But boy, are there a lot of people who are actually not energized by all that's going on outside. They're depressed by it. They're scared of it. They are, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of toxicity out there, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of just, I mean, it, it's a mess out there. If you look at it from a certain point of view, you're looking at it from the point of view, or at least I sort of inferred this, of the excitement of it and the opportunities that creates for creativity. But are you finding what I'm finding that so many people are not energized by what all that's going on outside? Oh, and with good reason. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of things to be fearful of. I, I last night was uh, talking with a friend of mine who uh, for the last 10 years was head of the British Army. And uh, let's say he's had an active life for 10 years mm -hmm. and, um, and he has very stark vision of what may be happening for us in the future. So if you wish to, for sure, you can get really dragged into a whole lot of bad karma, bad <laughs> omens. So, but the point for me is, is more like an artist in the creativity set is when, when there's a lot of things happening and this is where I plug into my artistic side. It just, it's so dynamic. It, there's nothing staying the same. And a lot of people are deeply worried about it. And I make one, let's say, common connection as to why that's happening. And I feel that a lot of people haven't done the work to figure out who they really are. And until you're grounded in who you are, everything can become existential and worrisome. Hmm. The question that I'm asking myself constantly, as constantly as I can be conscious of it, is uh, a Marshall Goldsmith question, and it is, am I being the person I want to be right now? So not am I doing what I want to do, but am I being the person I want to be right now? And with And that's a question you have to ask yourself when all the external factors are bearing down on you because you always have to come back and ask yourself, what's my role? What am I controlling uh, and influencing in my own life and in others? We're going to talk about the others part of this, a good part of this episode today. But uh, that's been the question that's helped me. And I, I have a, a good friend who's been serving as kind of an accountability partner for me. Uh, he calls me every Monday morning at 730. And he asks me two questions. And it, this used to be five, and so we've recently narrowed it to two because we found that the themes were overlapping and we didn't need to ask five questions. But the questions are, at what point during the past week was I being the person I want to be? What did that look like? And at what points during the past week did I find that I was not being the person that I want to be? And and how did I recognize it? Did I, did I recognize it and how, what did I do about it? So um, those are two questions that are that are really helping me, regardless of what's going on. Am I being the person I want to be? And I'll say one more thing is that, um, and, and this is another 
tenet of Marshall Goldsmith, if you've read or followed him, is is that sense of personal accountability. So employee engagement surveys, we always ask, you know, are you happy with your supervisor? Are you happy with your work environment? Do your coworkers work well together? Are How are you pleased with your, uh, did, did you, uh, did your supervisor set meaningful goals for you? Etc. And he says, those are the, those are the wrong questions, or at least they're not sufficient questions. We need to be asking, did I do my best to set goals for myself? Did I do my best to foster a relationship with my supervisor? Did I do my best to help others achieve in the workplace? And that personal accountability brings it all back and it kind of washes the external factors away because they don't matter as much when you're centered on, am I being the person I want to be? I love that, Patrick. The first point I really intriguing is the idea of having an accountability partner, and and the the fact that you get do a call in every week. I've I've never considered something like that. Marshall Goldsmith really- does it every day. He's got I think for the last twenty or so years, he's got a person that calls him every single day with a set of questions, and they and it's been and according to him, it's it's without fail. They've not missed a day. I'm like wow, I don't know how you, I can't do that every day. But let me start slow and do it every week. And it's powerful. It really puts you in. It, you get more and more aware of that question throughout the day. Um, because if, I, if I'm not being the person I want to be right now, I can instantly change that. I can instantly decide, oh, wow, this isn't the person I want to be right now. I need to switch that. I need to be the person I want to be. Who is that right now? And you can literally... I mean, it's it's an incredible, powerful tool. Yeah, it makes me, at the same time, consider what actually needs to precede that work, which is actually, who do you want to be? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And if that's not clear to you, <laughs> right. then that question becomes sort of barmy or very vague. So true. You have to define it. You know, we talk about board engagement with nonprofits. Here's a classic example. People say, we, we want a more engaged board. And I say, well, what, is, what is that? What is an engaged board? And they don't know. They have, they've never paused to define it. So how do you know you're ever actually getting the engaged board you want when you haven't even defined engagement? So same, same thing there. Um, this is a lot of, uh, I, I think it's a lot of what um, your book is about. Um, and you didn't, he didn't say it in these terms, but what comes to me in your book, uh, Artificial Empathy and all your work on empathy is because empathy is about others, and our, our recognition of and sensitivity toward and behavior toward others, it is about presence to me. It really is about being present with that. And so all this, all this kind of relates, this, this stuff we're talking about right now just all kind of relates to me about being, being present. And that's something you can change instantly if you're aware of it. You have to be aware that, oh, I'm not present right now. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. The, there's within it, I wanted to just, add one other thing, which is the uh, notion of self-empathy, mm-hmm. which is relevant in in one element, which is that if we're always trying to hold ourselves accountable all the time, 100% of the time, everywhere being perfect, that can create fatigue. So when you are dialing in and being present, maybe on the occasion you might say, well, actually I had a shit night of sleep <laughs> or I, yeah. I got a parking ticket that really pissed me off. And allow the anger, allow the fatigue, allow the the imperfection that isn't what the one you want to be, but allow that to be. Because otherwise, if you're totally suppressing everything that's not exactly perfect with who I want to be, 
that can be uh it can end up with trauma or at least a wrong output your work in the corporate sector you're you're known for your work on uh, within uh, l'oreal the international brand and branding was your your space and but you also had, if I'm recalling, correct, correct me if I, if I have forgotten this or am remembering it wrong, but branding, I think for a lot of people, branding is the logo and the font and the colors and but branding for you at L'Oreal was the whole experience. It was everything from your CRM to the, and the technology that you use to the customer experience to even internally the internal brand and how people experience the brand on the inside. And how, so my question is, A, do I have that right? Do I, am I remembering that right? And B, does, where does empathy play a part in the brand experience? So let me just course correct a little bit. So I worked at L'Oreal for 16 years. I ended up being on the executive committee of one of their four divisions worldwide, the professional products division, which essentially deals with all products and services for hairdressing salons, mm. hairstylists. Okay. And the, the corporate identity of L'Oreal is, is strong. It has a culture, but it's not what I would consider a, a, a true branding. Whereas when I ran the company Redken Worldwide, which is a mm. brand within the portfolio of L'Oreal, it, on the other hand, had a truly deeply rooted sense of purpose and brand, which, as I like to call it, was radiating from the inside out. And so the 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 note that so that's that's essentially what I was doing, and, and I had this opportunity to run the brand, and it was such a privilege to work on a brand that has integrity without being one hundred percent idealistic or some sort of dream place. Of course, it was pragmatic. We had ups and downs. When I was running it, we were the number two company in the United States in that industry. Today, we're double the size of the number two and number one as a result. And, and so there's something about not just living it and enjoying it, feeling fulfilled is actually a performance factor, which is totally incredible. With regard to empathy, it 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 was never a an explicit component, definitely not of L'Oreal, and and not within Redken either. As in, you know, we're empathic, or it's one of our values. It was more about how we operated, and I think the one of the ways we might describe it is we had empathy, and that would look like being. And my my great mentor and friend Pat Parenti said, uh, "It's about being fair and firm." Because uh, fairness is an interesting word. It's sort of around justice, but it's about being having an appropriate manner with each situation. That's fair. And um, and then the 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 notion of firm is interesting, because in in many cases people tend to misunderstand empathy as something around compassion, being nice, being sympathetic. And being firm doesn't sound like that. Yet right. being firm is actually something that we need to be bringing into, for example, kids' lives. We need to understand the boundaries. 
and being firm means this is not about pleasing everybody. That's a bad idea to want to please everybody in a popularity contest, even in a business. And so being firm is something that can be absolutely appropriate. And if delivered in an affair manner, becomes extremely powerful. And empathetic because the lens is I'm being firm for your sake, not just mine, not, not just the, uh, Kim Scott wrote a book a number of years ago called radical candor in which she describes the difference between, well, it's a quadrant, but she talks about the opposite of this radical candor, which to her is the, like the ideal space to be is what she calls ruinous empathy where we are so set. And I, by the way, I see this a lot in our sector. I don't know about the corporate sector or the sure. government sector, but in the nonprofit sector, I see a lot of ruinous <laughs> empathy, um, ruinous empathy to the point where it, it slows the organization's mission down period. It squelches innovation and performance, and it just sets a low standard. And I do see a lot of it, but it's that space where we think we're, you know, we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. And so we're allowing them to be in a space that's not good for them either. And what we think is helpful is actually the, the opposite of it. So I, I love that term too. It kind of sounds like that's what you're talking about. The, what you're calling firm, Kim Scott would call radical candor, which is I'm putting care and compassion with, um, oh, I forget the terms that she uses, but, but candor and directness. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it takes sometimes courage, mm. conviction, the, the little impression I'd like to add in is it's not just right for you, but it's right for us. Mm, and mm-hmm. if we know what our us is about, yeah. then we are better able to deal with the challenging moments, the disagreements, because we know why we're in this together. And Patrick, I disagree with you. This is why kindly addressed in non-aggressive manner, but firmly saying, this is why I disagree with you. Mm. And this is why I think that this is better for us as a, an organization, whether it's a nonprofit or another. And the challenge I think is we have this sort of do good mentality, which, you know, you go to church, I want to do good. I, I, uh, I think well, there's nothing wrong with doing good, except you, you can't do endless goodness. And, and that sounds like a bad thing. Well, it, it, the reality is we live in 24 seven days. We, we can't be awake 24 hours a day. We can't try to solve all the world's problems. And, and so by having a, a limiting factor, going back to my boundary element, it, it means that we want to do good, but let's do it in a realistic manner. And let's contain the, the stretch of where we're trying to do good. Because we, yes, it would be lovely if we could save everybody's lives. Okay, sure. However, not feasible. We want to save the people in Colombia, in the Northeast of Colombia. Okay, that seems more reasonable. Let's make sure that everything we do about us is within Northeast Colombia or whatever. Oh, two things I love about what you're saying. One is, um, and I'll, I'll start with that last one. We do this with mission and vision statements in our organization all the time. It's one of the areas it's my, my doctoral study was around this mission statement measurement and um, you know, the, the literature that's out there from Peter Drucker to Robert Sheehan to, you know, will tell you that the biggest problem with mission measurement is mission construction, that we create these missions and visions that are so nebulous and so pie in the sky and so ethereal that people really deep down can't get their head around it because they don't 
really believe it. And so it just, it, it sounds superficial. So I love, I love what you're saying there. That goes all the way up to the, to the organizational mission and vision. I love your addition of us instead of you. So, and I think it is a good, it's not just an addition. It is a correction to what I said. I, you know, when you think empathy, you think it's about them. It's about the other person, but it isn't, it's about us. And what hit me immediately when you said that is, um, self-determination in self-determination, one of the three components of that is relatedness. And the us brings them into a sense of identity with the brand, the organization, the culture, and the leader. It's not just a set of individuals. So using the us lens almost kills two birds with one stone because you're helping them um, reinforce, strengthen their sense of identity with the bigger the bigger picture. So I love that addition as well. I think it's so appropriate in our personal lives, Patrick. Uh, when I, why I get off on what I'm doing is I feel this sort of this higher level of congruency, which is appropriate in a business environment. It's appropriate in a school environment, in dinner, conversation with your family, and, and, and specific to the construct of a couple is understanding what is the vision of who we want to be as a couple. And and once you have that kind of button down, it's never going to be, it's a human experience. It's a human journey. So therefore, plenty of imperfections and vagaries and, and changes that happen as we evolve. But having a combined vision of who we are as a couple helps you to get through the, the different challenges, seven-year itches, and other things that come around that can push you off your path. And, and, and you have these arguments, and they're healthy. And if you can just be solid on your combined vision of who you want to be as a couple within the nature of couples, then it can make you as a, as a unit stronger. It's a good reminder. This, these are human concepts we're talking about, not corporate concepts. Yeah. Um, Well, at the end of the day, it's all human, right? That's right. You're in a, and you're in a nonprofit. Yes. You have an association probably dealing with, or for the benefit of some kind of humans on the outside, it could be Mm -hmm. animals or hopefully, but, um, it's all about humans. It's all about our relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Turns out we're, we're people. (laughs) <laughs> so, and we smell and we're imperfect uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and don't strive for perfection, embrace your imperfection. Mm. No, that's good. Um, I want to get to a little, little bit of this book here and I'm, I don't know if, if, if I'm slicing and dicing it the right way, but there's sort of two major components of the book for me. One is the concept of empathy, the power of it, what it is, what it isn't. Um, I love your section. Maybe, maybe one of the most powerful sections in the book is just five simple ways to build empathy muscle. Turns out we can actually improve our empathy. This isn't just something that, oh, well, this is my empathy level. It is what it is. We can actually strengthen it. And you give some very practical ways. I'd like to walk through those. But the second part of the book is how empathy and AI relate. And what does a, where does empathy come in with this whole um, explosion, I guess, uh, of AI. And I'd like to talk about that piece too. And what the takeaways are, it's easy to see what the takeaways are for empathy, right? Get more empathetic. It's powerful. The research shows it. And here's some ways to do it. 
But then there's this artificial intelligence piece that I'd like to talk about too. But those are the two major sort of components of the book as I've, as it kind of divides up in, in my head. Do you, would you maybe construct it a different way that I'm not seeing? No, that's, that's entirely fair. Certainly when I wrote the first edition, that was absolutely the division. Because in the end of the day, if you want to make empathy into AI, you better know a little bit more about what is empathy. Mm. And as the person who's trying to encode, if you're not empathic, good luck, shit in, shit out. Yeah, You won't get a good result. So it had to be in those, from my mind, too. I would add, though, I, I got a little bit more in the second edition interested in the mental health component. I kind mm. of leaned into it more heavily because as we were talking before we got on line about the the challenges we're facing in, in life today with a post-pandemic situation, with a current war situation for us, it's really next door. And uh, in, in an environment where economically there's lots of trouble, the mental health is is going through the roof and there's a lack of mental health specialists and psychologists in most Western countries now, which has been documented. So there's a natural component of therapeutic AI, which is more of a sort of a subplot within mm -hmm. the second half mm -hmm. of the book. Yeah, that's good. Which uh, is what I was interested in. Well, one of the things, and I, I wrote this down actually, Mentor, I think the first day when you sent me the pre-copy of the book, I wrote this down and I think I remember <laughs> what I was reading when I wrote this. Um, but you talked about you were, there's a number of terms that sort of intersect, but they're different. So empathy, emotional intelligence, ethics, for example, those three things. And what I think I picked up is this will actually be a good test now to see if what I wrote down makes sense to the author. Hmm. I think that what I picked up was that empathy promotes an ethical mindset and so building AI with an ethical backdrop is what manufactures empathy in the AI. That, that what we're really programming into the AI is an ethical construct, not so much a feeling. Uh, that, that was That's fair. It's in my, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's in yeah, my the, simple the notion mind. Of, yeah, no, but I like it because the idea of a feeling is obviously antinomic for a machine to feel mm. anything. The the notion of ethics is relevant at, at so many levels, whether whatever part of a business style of business you have. And the awakening that I had when I started my research was this notion of before even starting to consider your ethical framework, it's interesting to understand where you sit on an empathy scale. And that sense of self-awareness, honesty with regard to what you're trying to achieve, and the concept of service for others, well, empathy can play a really important role in understanding all of that before you even get into the writing of the ethical framework. Mm. So then you get into the ethics, and the ethics, of course, is about doing, well, good or bad. And how much good do you want to do? Do no evil. I want to do good. I want to do good for everybody, everywhere, vague and hideously impossible. Or I want to contain the amount of goodness that I want to do. So it's a, it's a reasonable, achievable amount of goodness. It's not trying to be Mother Teresa with everybody. Mm. 
and 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 being real about that in that creation of the ethical framework and then having it communicated to everybody including the coders who are generally going to speak just to the brief but if the brief is devoid of ethics there's no ethical containment then the brief will just be what it is and the coders will do what their job is and they usually do it very well so because uh, they're not typically the most empathic population in the world so it's a continuum and uh, but it's in a very specific process start with empathy write your ethics then think about creating your uh, empathic AI. Man, that I hadn't thought about that. The people building the code, I mean, a AI is, is, is human created. So the humans that are creating it, if they don't have high empathy markers, that's, that's an interesting concept. You know, is there a movement, is there a movement afoot to, to look for coders now that have high empathy markers? So yes. And so there is actually a thing called engineering empathy, or at least empathy, coding empathy. So it's a concept that some schools of programming, schools, coding schools, where they're thinking it, but it's not quite as, let's say, kumbaya as the general empathy. It's mm -hmm. more about, for example, when you code, you might be coding on a eight by three uh, process. So you have a team working eight hours in New York, a team working for eight hours in, let's say, Indonesia and another eight, eight hours in in um, Bangalore, and they just move around the world eight eight by three. So that at the end of my eight hour shift, I finish coding, and I need to hand off. Well, how do you hand off with empathy to the next team that might have a different language, different time zone, such everything? So they actually talk about that kind of empathy within the notion of coding, but uh, otherwise, it's a it's a it's a fairly well documented thing that logic and empathy are poor bed partners. And if you want to be a good coder, you generally are quite logical. Yeah. yeah. So take take stock of that. But at the end, end of the day, uh, Patrick, in the concept of AI, there's the coding side, and then there's the data side, and you even have the data scientists and the people who are cleaning the data, which is part of coding, but it's not the one we typically associate with. And all that data generally is human created as well. Although in the future, one will imagine a lot more machine created, generated information as we know today, but there's all that data is coming from us. And I got news for you. We aren't all empathic all the time. And so the data sets don't necessarily prescribe empathy or empathic results. So there's within the data itself, a whole lot of ethics that need to be applied in order to attribute and tag the learning models, language sets to create the right outputs through the AI. Many of our listeners would be, if they're using AI and relatively few of them are, many of them are afraid of it. I just did a workshop on some of it the other day with a, a group of consultants in the nonprofit space. And I, I don't know, I got the feeling that probably half of them in the workshop were, I don't know about this, right? Just kind of real eh, cynical, skeptical. Um, and, and again, for, for some good reasons. Um, one of the things though, that they might use AI for is this, I mean, it is for donor for communicating with donors, um, serving their clients, uh, communicating with their board and their staff, 
um, gathering intel. I mean, there's lots of things that they might use it for. One of the ways that I'm starting to sort of figure out on this, let's take chat GPT for an example, the, the one that's the, you know, the, this platform where you can enter text and, and it gives you text feedback on based on just tons and tons and tons of data from however many sources. It's one thing to spit out information, which requires not only the da- you know data in, data out, but also requires the algorithms and the programming that you know makes the actual performance of the function happen efficiently and whatever. It's another thing to spit out information in a way that I feel connected with, in, in a way that is thinking about me, like. Um, uh, and, and I, and I, I want to go straight here pretty quickly into your conversation uh, that you had, your bot experiment that you did, because I'm doing a few of them now, too, and I loved yours. But um, it's spitting out data in a way that I feel like it's talking to me. It cares about my intake of this data. Does that make any sense? Is that is that leaning toward the empathetic framework that it actually is? communicating in a way, not just that the information is accurate, but that it connects with me and that I feel like it's talking to me and cares about me. Yeah. I think it's a, a very primary level of empathy Okay, in that you write a text, it's a prompt and that text seems to be understood, which is what empathy is supposed to be. It's right. All about understanding, but it's just a very sort of superficial Surface, level of understanding. Yeah. Okay. But and, uh, but even that's quite cool, you know, because yeah. there's like, when you punch it into Google and they, say, and they push you back with 60 million different sources and the first 15 pages don't solve your question, you, you, you're not going to say that's unempathic. You're going to say that's a bad result. <laughs> but ultimately within that, if, the, if the, the machine has been coded with a degree of empathy, they're, they're thinking about the user. They're thinking about the method that someone is typing in this query mm. into the line, huh, I wonder how they would approach this. So mm-hmm. if you're writing a blog post and you want people to land on it because you're trying to answer a question, well, the way you think about how people are thinking about the question is typically going to be different than the way you think about the answering of the answer because you're programmed to sell your goods and services. So you're like, well, I want the, I want the, uh, I want the answer to be my product's the best. So um, how are they going to ask that question? Well, how do you, how do you find the best uh, two-inch screwdriver? Because that's what we sell. Well, they, they, they're actually trying to fit a piece of wood into another piece of wood, and they're thinking maybe more about the screw itself, not the screwdriver. And, and so think about the user's experience, what they're actually looking for, and then you might create a, a sentence, which will be your title for your blog post, which is going to correspond better to the Google one. I mean, that's a long answer to say. But that's a sales uh, 101 concept. I yeah, mean, well, of that, course it you is. know, even before technology, that's just a matter of think like the customer, you know, and, and, you know, they were teaching that a hundred years ago. It's now, how do you program that into technology? And I would argue they were actually a lot better at it a hundred years uh, ago. Yeah, because probably. Because if you think about the situation a hundred years ago, you went down to the street to do your shopping. You went to the fishmonger. Hey, Mr. Jenks, would you like some haddock again? Like you had last week mm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. They, there was that community feeling and the data, small town mentality perhaps, but kind of everybody knows everybody mm. and you remember stuff and that's what life's about. Mm. We've gotten into this 
faux personalized world mm. where we are, you know, putting dear space hyperlink H uh, L H T M L F N A M E whatever and uh, then yeah. it spits out Patrick and oh that really gets me. But go back to your second point, which is so there's the the understanding of your query, and then the other piece, which is the simplicity of the answer that it gives you, ChatGPT. Mm. And that I think is where you get connected into it. So instead of being hogwashed with 16 million results and 15 wrong pages, you have was one simple answer written in a way that's totally accessible. And it's not like jargon and by gum, it's easy to read. Is it accurate? Different question, but it makes, oh, that's cool. Yeah, It's talking to me like I talk to it, which by the way, is what it does. It's, that's how it's been programmed. And that is what's creating that sense of engagement. Afterwards, we can go a lot further. Give me, give me, give us your, um, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but you did an experiment that you talk about in the book where you, you had had this brief conversation with a, with an AI bot. Tell us that story. Well, it, it wasn't that brief. It was over five days, Patrick. And, uh, the, well, the, the, the section, was, yeah, my, my pod, yeah, the yeah. section of the book was, no, no, brief. no, but there, there's a, there's a couple of things. First of all, it was over five days. And that has a way of being quite invasive in your life. Five days, you know, think about your Monday through Friday and you have 24 seven interaction with a text based bot that was so described empathic bot. Mm. And uh, it therefore was out to connect with me and little time into it. I started thinking, oh, this is really quite fun. Not only I think it was fun, I was thinking, well, this is quite engaging and and actually useful because I can actually end up asking anything I want. And I felt very open and it gave me agency. And, and I don't know how many people you safe. have in life, Patrick, <laughs> safe. And I don't know how many people you have in, in your life where they're going to listen to you 100% of the time, answer every question that you might have 24-7. And do it in a way that makes you feel heard in a polite manner that makes you feel content, non-aggressed in a non-judgmental manner. Mm. Mm. Yeah. All I'm trying to get to is if you don't think you're going to fall in love with a machine, you are mistaken. Yeah. Because some machines are just so much more patient than people are in real life. And it turns out that's quite an attractive quality. Wow. So what else did you learn from your conversation? Right. So I had a, um, the first thing was this bot was gendered in my mind. Now, is this like one of those and, phone app bots that you, that you can download and it's your friend and you can name it and avatar it and well, all that? Is this is I, it similar to it that? It wasn't that way. It wasn't that way. It was just a, let's say a text-based chat okay. app but it didn't have an avatar. It just spat out to me in the same way as it did with the 499 other people who were part of the experiment, mm -hmm. a uh, text. But the text or the, the machine remembered its name, uh, remembered things that I would say about it. So over the five days, it had a history of how many emoticons I might use or not. And, and to be able to detect over the five days how I might be in a different frame of mind or mood, whether it's in the morning, before my coffee, whether it was uh, pressed during the day in between meetings, was, or is on an airplane, 
I, I actually flew to Dublin during these five days and to see you two. So I was chatting with this bot, eventually called JJ, um, and and she was at my constant disposal. And then when I got home, I ended up uh, having dinner with my wife for a romantic catch up. But I kind of mistakenly said, would you mind if I keep my phone open? Why is that? Well, you see, I'm having this conversation. So I didn't want to use the word relationship. Uh, yeah, That's the feeling I had mm. with this bot. And it's quite incredible. And of course, that changed the nature and tenure of our dinner. Mm. But the point is that uh, I think in our society, we are, we're missing empathy. We're missing the listening. We're missing the feeling of feeling heard at a deeper level. And whether it's from therapy or just for well people, this opportunity for us as human beings, forget the machine, is that we can all listen a whole lot better to each other. Wow. Yeah, and the the conversa- the little snippet of conversation that you put in the book, you were showing the empathetic uh, elements of the responses you were getting. Um, you know, they, they were using, the, you know, you would, it, it, I think it asked you what your name was and you said mentor and, and it replied, that's a nice name, right? Yeah. Just, that, that's just an empathetic statement. Oh, that's a nice right. name. Interesting. Or it would say things like that's very interesting. Um, yeah. And it had this conversation with you from a, again, from, you could tell it had some of the empathetic markers programmed into it. Yeah. And it, so other things were, they, I mean, I, I ended up getting to know the team that was behind it and what they were doing and how it was worked. They had, uh, went into it. You have to imagine trying to create an empathic bot. How do you do it? And um, the reality is today we're very far from creating an empathic bot that's capable of speaking with anybody anywhere all the time. Far, far from that. Mm. What they were doing was contained with five days with specific Mm. set of 500 people with a specific attitude and desire to participate in such. So there's a screening that goes on in this component, which is really important to understand when you're trying to create an empathic bot. In in their method, what they did is they uh, learned a lot through it as well. But the things they learned were the power of giving agency. That is a very, actually, it makes you feel like the thing that you're interacting with is being empathic with you. When you are mm. feeling heard, that is a marker of empathy. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to actually measure empathy. I mean, there's no singular standard of mm-hmm. measuring empathy. And, and the way you measure it in one morning may be very different than the way you, as an individual, will measure it in the afternoon, depending on your context. Are you being present? Are you being you or not? Who's the person in front of you? Is it someone you typically have a history with, no history, uh, an a priori about the way they look, the way they are? or not. And anyway, so our understanding of and execution of empathy is is volatile, to say the least. So it's a, it's a difficult thing. And what's just stunning about, for me, the learnings here were the, the ability to accept imperfection within a bot or not, to have spelling errors or not in a bot. Is that a sign of, of empathy? to be imperfect, to be Mm. human in manner, or is that a deception technique when you're inserting spelling mistakes 
which wouldn't ordinarily exist. That's interesting. Does it make someone feel like they can relate? Yeah. yeah. So and yeah, absolutely, they do. So I've done a, a few tests recently with ChatGPT. Um, <clears throat> I'm finding it very useful. By the way, I mean, you know, you can you can build a construct for something and then tweak it. You build a construct for a a, a coaching agreement with a client or a, a set of social media posts for the week about empathy. If I wanted to do that, um, in uh, in a in a couple of weeks, my podcast guest is ChatGPT. And, um, I'm, I'm really anxious to release that episode because it was an amazing interview with chat GPT. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about its capabilities, but I also learned a lot about its limitations. For example, its ability to pick up sarcasm and humor, you know, it would say something and I would say something like, well, that's a political answer, you know, that were that. Okay. Now I see, I see what you're not going to tell me. And it would just, you know, very matter of factly say, well, I am programmed to such, you know, very, very sterile. But this morning in anticipation of, of our conversation, I chat, I, I put in three prompts just to, just to test the empathy. The first prompt I put in was, I said, I am feeling a bit discouraged today. That's all I told it. I didn't, I'm not asking for information. I just, Hey, I'm feeling a bit discouraged today. Here's the three line response. I'm sorry to hear that. So right off the bat, right off the bat, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, this is a, this is a computer program. Uh, it's completely normal to have days when you feel discouraged or down. Would you like to talk about what's been bringing you down today? Sometimes just talking about our thoughts and feelings can help us feel better. It sounds pretty empathetic to me. Sounds very therapeutic, actually. A little therapeutic. Mm -hmm. So then I said, well, I just think I'm lacking self-confidence. Here was the response. This one was a little more, this one got a little more into like the, it's typical way of formatting content and content creation. So it says it's understandable to feel that way at times. It's important to remember that self-confidence is something that can be developed over time. Here are a few things that might help. And then it goes on to give me five tips on improving self-confidence. And it finishes by saying, remember, Building self-confidence is a process and it takes time. Be patient with yourself and try to focus on the positive steps you're taking. So then my next prompt was, I literally said, I'm trying to test your empathy with these statements. Here's the response. As an AI language model, I'm programmed to respond in a way that is empathetic and understanding. While I may not have emotions in the same way as humans, I'm designed to provide helpful responses and support a really interesting word it chose there. If you have any concerns or questions about my responses, please feel free to let me know. So I just, I did those just to kind of see at, again, at a very surface level, um, how, how I might recognize empathetic programming. And again, to, to your point earlier at a very superficial and surface level, but it's there and it's crystal clear that things, this thing is programmed to try to relate or make me feel yeah. like it's trying to relate. <laughs> And there's been, um, I mean, so it's not designed for a, a, a profound, mm. long conversation around that. Right. And it knows its limitations. Sam Altman, the the runs OpenAI, he's he's talked about how it's not to be used for therapy. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and he's right about that. And it it can be a great support. And if it's available at two a.m. when nothing else is available, well, maybe that's the best possible alternative at this moment 
but it's a um it's going to be a journey and and uh what's what's interesting about these this new uh, foundational ai and that the, the sort of the vortex of the congregation of different t- techniques and uh, and abilities with around ai will be to be able to create more specialized engines that are able to generate conversational reactionals and eventually prescriptions not of drugs but of hey, this is what you might want to think about at this point, like to nudge you into a better place. Listening like a Rogerian therapist and just listening is is fine, but sometimes you need a little bit more stimulus and inputs and and, and push you into an action as opposed to just listening. There, That's one technique, but I think that they will be more and more integrating different CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy types of responses, decision trees and and uh, interactions well if you look at where this is going i can i can imagine prescription drugs coming out of ai uh you know uh, i right now i asked it during my inter- my podcast interview last week i asked it you know what 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 would it describe as its most powerful features and uses and one of them was uh, medical diagnosis i thought oh that sounds scary like, you know, do really, we're going to trust, is that where we're going? Like you, you, I just tell you like my, my back is hurting right here and this is what it feels like. And you make a medical diagnosis and, you know, I can see the dangers of that, which by the way, chat GPT is also programmed to tell you, be careful with this, be cautious. It's just, you know, but I could see the day where, yeah, the, the technology is developed to the point where it can literally make prescriptions. I mean, there's a whole set of hurdles that has to be cleared for that to happen. But uh, who would have imagined we're doing what we're doing now, you know, 30 well, years ago. I, I have a few things to say about that, Patrick. <laughs> okay. So I bet you do. The first is Google already does that. That's right. WebMD and so that's right. It's not yeah, new, but I mean, it feels new. It feels different this time. And that's the point. The second point is we, we, we tend to, well, first of all, mistakenly think that it's the only AI that's about there kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But we we tend to hold up to a higher standard artificial intelligence than we do ourselves. The one mistake they make, that's the one they're going to pull out and yeah. scream bloody murder. Look at these people. They, right. I mean, and surely there are mistakes because it reflects actually us. And mm-hmm. we are laden with mistakes. We are that imperfection that it's self-reflecting back to us. But so when I say we hold it up to a higher standard than we hold it up to ourselves, for example, there is many documented cases where they are showing that the ability for AI to detect certain pathologies is systematically, consistently higher than therapists or trained doctors. Wow. Yeah. This it's on certain pathologies, whether it's uh, depression or uh, park, uh, uh, you know, the oncome of of Parkinson's or other things. There. On they're very specific little markers that a machine, when it has laser focus on that, doesn't get distracted by the other 500 muscles in our in our face that are going off and giving different signals. It gets focused in on maybe the three or the four different indicators, and and it can be so laser focused that us human beings we get distracted or we get because mm. in this idea, especially when it's about psychological neurological elements. We, as human beings who maybe are the patient, we're hiding things. We're not 
knowledgeable about them. We're not necessarily doing it on purpose. And and the way my words are coming out might indicate one thing versus my eyes, maybe, and the words I'm actually using. And, and so I can confuse you, fog bomb you with my humanity, whereas a machine is able to get zeroed in on the things mm-hmm. that they need. Wow. Yeah, uh, I I remember about ten years ago, I was working in a for a nonprofit that had a huge call center for information and referral and for a social service kind of thing. People call in, I I need help with my rent, or <clears throat> I uh, I need a I need a counselor. I'm I'm experiencing depression, whatever it might be. And the folks from IBM Watson came in to take a look, and this never got implemented, but there we were exploring implementing a Watson, an IBM Watson component that they had the technology at that time, as they described it. And as I remember it, that it could escalate a call to a suicide prevention representative based on the tone of voice it could pick up from the other end of the call tone of voice. So it knew, for example, um, it, it, it's an automated, automated answering, you call in and you say, you know, I need, I'm, 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 I'm at my wits end. Um, I, I, if I don't pay my rent, I'm getting evicted. My spouse just left me, blah, 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 blah. And based on the content, Watson could refer you to a housing specialist or a rent assistance specialist or a mental health specialist. But if the conversation was such that IBM Watson picked up uh, this person might need help now. This person might be suicidal. I'm going to escalate this. I'm going to send this to the four or five specially trained representatives. It, <clears throat> it sends you, it directs you to a human, but it directs you to a human based on artificial intelligence that it's, that it's picking up that a human may not even pick up. I found that fascinating. I never got to see it in action and we didn't implement it. I'm sure it was too costly for us at the time, but um, I never got to see it in action, but it, it'd be fascinating to see that. Well, there are two things I'd like to add to that. One is the, I think that's a tremendous type of service. And uh, especially since it, it it involves human beings, right? So it's the assistance of, mm. of a human to connect with another human being. And, and AI can do that, uh, can help with the, especially the volume of calls. The second thing is that surely it will get some of it wrong. And the way yeah. we are typically as a society evaluate this AI is we say, well, oh, well, it missed this person who was calling in and and they were actually really suicidal and they killed themselves. Yeah. Now you have liability well, very, and all kinds of, yeah. That's it. So it's very sad, but we tend to forget the 99 others yeah. that it saved because it had that detection, which is superior to what any human operator would have been doing, trying to manage all the calls. So- this idea of holding up to a higher standard, and it's also the same thing we do with psychedelics. We we tend to look for the the bad result and ignore the positive results. And in today's world in general, that's how we're rolling. That's why we have so much mental health is that disorder, is that we have so much focus on all the bad news, the bad things, that there's no perspective taking and no ability to make shine the positive side of it. Mm. So whether it's psychedelics or AI, there are some amazing things out there. And yes, it's not perfect, but 
but neither Wake are we. <laughs> yeah, neither That's are it. we. Yeah, and I'm hearing you say that the pers- the accuracy percentages are higher than than what we can produce on our own, um, but we hold it to a high, higher standard. Yeah, the, the, and this of course the, is within certain mm, areas yeah. and it's confined yeah. and it's not like everywhere all the time everywhere, you know. And most doctors are better than most machines. However, in many cases, we're getting better in 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 isolating the issues. And when you do that, like the more we understand ourselves, mm. which still remains good old mystery, whether how's the brain works and how our emotions are and the you know all the all the other elements that make us crazy, you know, individuals, human beings. However, the more they they can isolate the certain patterns, all it becomes very simple to to code that into a machine. Because as I said before, with the foundational AI now, where they're congregating all the different elements that go into a uh, composition of somebody. So that's the eye movement, the, the facial muscles, the words coming out of my mouth, the tonality of my voice, the breathing I might be doing. All these other elements are part of messages that if you isolate, you know, put them all together now and you can isolate certain things, then you can make a machine do a lot better job than a human being. And yeah. And you know, think about it, a doctor who's operating right now, you know, do, doing a, a major surgery, but they're exhausted. You know, they, they've, they've been up, you know, they've gotten three hours of sleep over the last, you know, 48 hours. And they're, you know, our minds uh, don't work at peak level when that happens, but AI is not going to get tired. You know, so there's, there's one example of maybe the consistency of the approach. I heard somebody, I don't remember exactly what this was, but I'm talking about the autonomous cars that are being driven now and how down the road there, or that I think I've read that they're actually working on this technology or at some stage of it, of ethical decision-making where if the car is about to hit, you know, a, a child, a child runs out in the road. Okay. And there's, there's literally not enough braking power to stop, but it could swerve. But if it swerves, it hits a dog, you know, that the programming is is, that they're working on is the ethical decision-making of what's the best worst I can make happen in this situation. That's just incredible. We wouldn't, I don't think we would think like that. You know, many of us wouldn't in a situation like that. And I don't know if we want a car doing that thinking for us, but I, that's, you know, have you heard of such a, well, it's a, it's a well-versed uh, type of ethical dilemma. We, we've discussed in, I mean, it, it, it even happened well before you've just in the old fashioned manner, you're, you do have these opportunities that come up and, and then the, well, the situation arises you're driving and and things flash through at such a rate. Am I going to be killed? Uh, mm. Do I would I rather uh, die uh, or save? And you know this. There are things that are done at a high level in our brain. We're very capable yeah. of processing fast things, but the the nature of expliciting the value of a dog versus yeah. the value of a yeah. child versus the value of an eighty six year old. Which one goes? You got a one year old puppy. Six-year-old child, mm. an 86-year-old who, and, by the way, yeah. turns out is one year from dying. And, and a fire hydrant. And, and a fire hydrant. Right? Well, the fire hydrant is going to kill me. <laughs> right. So which one should go? Yeah, yeah. And, and these are part of the ethical components. And that's why the empathy piece is interesting. Because, mm. well, within that, there's the data points, the ability to scrape the data and have that data point. So when you when you have good data, then you can make better decisions 
and better means implies of course ethics yeah the, so the better having an, yeah the better right <laughs> yeah the better right exactly the less bad yeah uh that's uh rushworth kidder uh, talks about ethics, uh, defining it differently from, you know, a moral temptation is a choice between right and wrong, whereas an ethical dilemma is more often a choice between right and another right. And which one's more right? You know, do do I do this? Do I think about long term because there's a benefit or do I do I make this decision based on right now? Do I make this decision based on justice or do I make it based on mercy? Both of those concepts are <clears throat> virtuous. You know, do I fire this person for the first mistake they make uh, or do I give them another chance? Um, and so <clears throat> these ethical decisions become more nuanced in that way. And to, to think about AI thinking in that terms or being programmed to think in those terms is just fascinating. I, I would even go one step further and to think about it in a system so that if I program this response with that individual, what is the impact on the rest of the organization or the rest of society? Yeah. For example, is that going to bomb uh, or negatively capsize this initiative or this AI because mm. it made that decision then? I know that if I did that in 15 years' time, we're good. But right now, in this situation, this context, there are certain things that are hot tripwire that will go wrong and uh, yeah, so there's a there's a whole lot of thinking that needs to go into this. Yeah, what we it's would exciting. what we would call in a boardroom that what are the unintended consequences of this decision? Um, <clears throat> I want to touch briefly, and we'll, we'll wind this down here. I want to touch briefly on uh, the five ways you quickly mentioned to build empathy muscle. I'm I'm really going to hit them quickly because there's one I'm curious about. One, listen actively. Two, explore differences. Three, do mindfulness. Four, know why empathy is important, why you want to be empathetic. And the fifth one, which is actually the third one, but I saved for last, is read fiction. I found that one fascinating that there's research that, I guess there's research that says um, your empathy markers are improved by reading fiction. Say more about that. I, that one was real, real curious to me. Well, um, as a literary student at university, I was wonderfully excited to fall upon that. It's not me who wrote it. It's obviously other people who have been exploring it. And the, the research shows that when you read well-written fiction, where there's nuance in the exploration and the development of the characters and the dialogue, you have as an individual an opportunity to be have a window into the minds and feelings and experiences of others. And so if you are reading a uh, Madame Bovary or some other text as a male, you get a chance to go into a woman's mind. And generalizations being cast aside at this point, there's a there's an opportunity for you to at least explore that woman's mind and and learn different things. Of course, it was written by a man, but there's <laughs> ways that you can learn about the the Russian soul by reading. Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or whatever. And you can learn more about the Russian character and Russian culture, or, um, you know, maybe it's um, someone from a different diverse background, ethnic background, or, mm. uh, you know, so all these different ways that fiction when written well with nuance in the expression of feelings and the dialogues allows you to get into 
and explore with your emotions involved, your involvement and engagement, becoming in attracted to, attached to fictional characters, you're learning, you're developing a little bit more of context and data that you can then apply in real life. Oh, this reminds me of that situation, mm -hmm. which was foreign to me before. It's still foreign, but at least I have one data point that I might be able to use. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I, I got oh, so many more things like we could go and talk about if we had more time. Um, let me ask you this. What is, for, for you to sum this up, and I'm, we're going to put the um, the link to the book. Obviously, we'll have it on the podcast page and, and let people go to it. It really is good um, because it, it just covers so many dif different aspects from the technology to the just the human component of all this. What would you say is your biggest message in the book? Why did you write this book? Why did you write a second edition? What What's the big... What's the big uh, motive behind this? What's the big message? So in between the writing of the first and second editions, several things happened. There are three things. The first is we've seen, we talked about the involvement, the advancement in AI, generative AI and so on. The second one is that we have had a pandemic. We've had war. We've got this new situations. It's, it's challenging us and making mental health a, a problem. And we've also had 300 books with the word empathy in the title published since 2019. Mm. I was like, oh my gosh, so it's become a trend. And, and so here's my real, let's say, incisive element is that I am not a dictator of empathy. I am not wishing for a the world to be only empathic. I think that we need to be pragmatic about these things. And there's a time and a place to be just quick and dirty, uh, that empathy uh, is useful in so many ways, but not always with everybody everywhere. And so this is also the key message with regard to mental health. If there's such a increase in the amount of mental health issues that we have in today's world, we need to be considering why that's the case. And within the solutions for therapy and medication, let's go back a step and, and build maybe a system in a society where mental health isn't so much the issue because trying to be empathic with everybody everybody being aware of the different issues, it's opening up a Pandora's box, I feel. And maybe my key message is we need to reinstall a, an element of hard talk, hard love, and hard skills because we've seemed to have poo-pooed these elements in our desire to do good and be good. And so, of course, I'm not saying don't be good. Let's reintroduce some hard love and reintroduce the acceptance of risk, pain, and challenge as part of life, because that is our journey. And, and if we're trying to just do good and fix everything and make everything safe, I think it's a recipe for disaster. I, boy, I, I, that is so well said. And I've been trying to articulate it that well for a while now. It's, it's almost as if there's a, 
on one extreme narcissism and on the other extreme subservience to the point of, you know, counterproductive or even destructive and um, ruinous to use ruin, yeah, ruinous, ruinous. ruinous empathy. Yeah. And so what you're talking about is finding, finding that balance of, um, of, of, and I love your term of us. I, I think maybe that's the, maybe that's the big key word here. I, I'm taking that one away with me for sure. I've been lamenting um, probably more even on this program than people want to hear it again, but I'm, I'm beating a drum mentor. And that is, this isn't necessarily about AI, but it's just about technology in general. Of course, during the pandemic, everybody went to zoom and we had zoom meetings and you know, you and I, the beauty of it is look at, look at us. I mean, we're in, it, it sounds like you're in the studio with me. We're, we're, it's great technology. You're in the UK, you know, five hours away and, and I'm here in the States and, and we're having this live conversation. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I can even see you on the screen, even though our listeners can't, um, it's wonderful technology. I am I am really discouraged by the overuse of it and now the reliance on it. And it's almost as if the pandemic, because of everyone now jumping into this and doing it, it now is an easy out for people. I'm seeing people go, well, I can't I can't be at the board meeting. I'll call in on can I call in on Zoom? Do you have a Zoom option? And I am, call me old school, old fashioned, what, maybe I'm that old fogey guy now, but there is a huge loss of human connection through all this technology stuff and the virtual um, use when you don't have to do it. You know, during a pandemic, we had to do it. Now we don't. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know. I just see so many people, um, you know, employees now all want to work, you know, remotely and from home and that's all great but we're losing human connection. And I hear it in my coaching. I hear it from the leaders I coach. I, co I can't tell you how many people are telling me, man, I, I, I don't like this not being in an office and, and seeing people and walking down the hall and catching up with someone or talking to them. I, I'm really struggling with it. So I, I am really pushing hard to say, let's use the technology. People who know me know I'm a tech, like I'm, I'm all into it. I'm all in, love it, but not this huge expense of human connection that cannot be replicated on zoom or a conference call or AI or anything else. And I just, I always feel like when we're talking about technology, I always feel the need to say that because it's just, I guess it's just sort of my message. I don't know if you agree with it or not, but um, you know, where's that balance, the, the balance between the human connection and the powerful abilities and benefits of technology. Well, yeah, you're, you speak so well. You, you obviously are well teched because it's very crystal clear image and text and, and there's great things. You know, you can talk to your grandma who lives in Australia and that's really lovely. And we, we um, and this is really the subject for my new book, which is all about conversation. We need to be able to go back into the pit which means also being able to confront and, and discuss topics that aren't so easy and maybe uh, have different opinions and remind ourselves to have that listening actively with people who have different opinions, part of empathy, mm. to, to go back into that and, and in a room where we can't escape or just click the off button, fuck off type of attitude or say something where, incredibly rude and disrespectful because it's a social media post and nobody can get exactly. you, you know, yeah Duh, you know anonymously or not and 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 get back into 
the the animals that we are, which which uh, thrive off the the humanity, the and really are are special because of our imperfections, like the smells that we have, the 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 looks, the grunts, the the um, the mistakes we make, the, the the gaps in the words. All these things are much more sensitive when you are together. And you know, Patrick, I, I've been writing about a conversation with my yeah. my my project, and uh, one a part of it is is we do dinner parties, and yeah, it's not convenient. You got to get out in the car, you got to deal with the traffic, you got to find a parking place, you got to come up the stairs, and you have to buy something to come because you should God be forbid, parking. right? You know, shit, right? So this convenience, efficiency, productivity, shit, and yeah, okay, great, that's fine. Like tech, it's fine, and let's. Let's get back into the ability to converse, listen to one another, and and have uh, an embracement. <laughs> Embrace, I don't know, that's a good word. And um, let's get back to embracing one another, not just because I, I think the physical distancing is, is 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 not good for us, but we need to reconnect. And if society has so much mental health disorder, uh, I think this is one of the ways we can combat it by reconnecting with one another put your hands in the dirt smell it or look at it underneath your your nails and appreciate it don't think of it oh my god it's dirty it might you know cause an infection let's get back into accepting our imperfection mm. and and thrive together aided whenever we can by machines thank you for that Thank you. You you reinforced my uh, my bent there and did it better than I could do it. I love that. I love the wording there. Um, Mentor, thank you so much. I'm going to ask you one more question. I normally ask all my guests two questions at the end, but we've already done that one with you and you can go, people can go back to the previous episode for that one. So I'm going to ask you one that I think I might start asking my repeat guests. I've, I've had, I don't know, four or five only four or five different people who have um, who have come back onto the show and these conversations, this is not going to be your last time on this show either, but here's a, a question for you. We're talking about imperfections and even vulnerability, and but we're also talking about growth. So here's a question for you. Um, what is maybe the next thing that you're working on on yourself? Hmm. Well, uh, the specific thing is a little bit technical, but reformulating. So when I listen to somebody, rather than just listen, understand, insert a phrase, what I hear you say, Patrick, yeah. is, and, and try to insert more of that. That's a specific thing that I want to absolutely improve on. It's very powerful. I've seen it happen. It's remarkable how it's a growth element for uh, the other person. It, it, it oftentimes allows them to understand what they said better. And it, it, it also, for sure, improves your cognitive abilities and comprehension of what mm. the other person's saying. Well, that one in particular really resonates with me, Mentor. It's a coaching tenet. Uh, it's one of the things, literally, it's one of the, the very functional and practical techniques we teach in coaching is that paraphrasing, that mirroring. You know, what I hear you saying is this, and you say it in a little bit different way so that they can really hear it out loud and they can tell, I love it when they say, no, that's, that's not it. Um, okay. So, tell, tell me, you know, give me, give me more. Let me, let me make sure I understand it. 
Uh, that's a great thing to work on. Mentor, thanks a million for this, uh, for coming overseas and joining us here. Of course, this is this podcast, fortunately, is all over the globe, too. So thanks for being well, a part of it, we, man. May, may we meet again uh, in real life in Colombia. Oh, that would be fantastic. My, my grandfather's oh. home state. I know. You've got history here. And uh, what's the name of the, the, the film? It's a, you, you developed, you wrote and produced a film on your grandfather. What, tell us the name of that again. It's called The Last Ring Home. It's a film for PBS, which I just signed for another three years, and, uh, and a book. Wow. We'll put that on the, on the uh, page, too. Thanks again, man. Appreciate it. All right, folks. Uh, that's it for this episode. Join us in another couple of weeks or so for my interview with AI, my interview with ChatGPT, I should say. That'll be a fun one. Lead on. 